He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had worn. One, he drove out nations before them, he apportioned them for a possession, and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Those are verses 50 to 55 of Psalm 78, verses 40 to 72 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Tuesday, November the 8th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the book of Joel, today in chapter 1, verses 15 to uh, to two, chapter 2, verse 11, in Luke's gospel again, chapter 14, verses 25 to 35, and in the book of the Revelation, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. So remember yesterday that they had had a, a horrific um, locust swarm, or a set of swarms, actually, there are four different ones, that, that swept through the land and destroyed all the crops. And Joel is saying that is a precursor to what God's actually going to do. He's going to bring judgment against his people as well. And so he continues here with that prophecy. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and his destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off from before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herd of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. So he, he's, he's saying that, that we have huge problems. Nothing's coming up. Everything that did come up is devoured by these locust swarms. And there's there, so much now that the beasts themselves groan because there's nothing for them to eat. The fields are, are destroyed. There's nothing for them at all. Even the sheep can't find anything to eat. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness." He said that twice. This fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. He, he begins and ends it with that statement, that this complaint, that the flame has burned all the trees of the field. And, and if you get something that's so dry, and we see that in America on a regular basis every summer, right, we get these wildfires that, that sweep across swaths of, of California and sometimes in Washington and, and even in the last few years, even here in western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee. And, and he's, he's calling out, the prophet is, to say, alas, alas, it's a horrible thing. We're all going to die. So then what's the response to that? Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. And so it's, it's no longer this locust swarm that's the problem. It's this people that's been raised up to come against Israel. And so far, he's not telling them who that is, who this nation is. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. 
The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. So they see this judgment coming across the land that's laid out like Eden and is now destroyed at their advance. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. And with a rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountain, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. In other words, there, there's just no hope. They are, they are, it's an in, unstoppable force that's coming. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march, each on its way. They do not swerve from their paths. They don't jostle one another. Each marches in his own path. There is a fearsome thing about the way this army comes at at the people because there's no jostling. It's, it's a perfectly well-ordered march, and it's relentless. They don't jostle one another. Each marches in its own path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And so what Joel is seeing is God's judgment coming against God's people. And as I said yesterday, that that we can always expect that to come first against God's people because we have failed. We have failed to make him known correctly. We failed to give honor and glory to him who has blessed us in every single way. And so the judgment comes against us because we took his name in vain for the purpose of vanity, not in spirit and in truth. And that's the the judgment that he's announcing here, is that this is a relentless, unstoppable thing. There's nothing you can do. Now, there is one thing we can do, right? There's always a thing we can do. We can repent. And if we read Solomon's dedication to the temple, we see that again and again and again, that Solomon says, when your people who are called by your name, when they look, when they turn to you, then forgive them. When they turn to your temple, when they, when they turn back to your ways, then forgive them and restore them. And, and that's always the case. And, and I believe that, that the church right now needs to be on its knees in America. I believe that we need to be on our knees and we need to be asking forgiveness because we've been a ten-talent church or a five-talent church and we've wasted them. We've chased after the wind. In so many ways, we've chased after the wind. We've forgotten who he truly is because we haven't been needy and we've been fat and happy and prosperous. And, and when we get that way, then, then we forget him and we chase after the wind. And we forget that the proclamation of Jesus is the only thing that matters. And we're going to hear that in the book of the Revelation today as well. But in the gospel, remember what Jesus had said uh, yesterday, he, he had told them that, that many who believe themselves to be part of the kingdom, who will participate in the banquet of the Lamb, won't be there, ultimately. And then he'll compel others to come in. And so now he's continuing to make his way to Jerusalem, and we're told the crowds accompanied him. And he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. I mean, that is 
a, a powerful statement, and it's a, it's a standard that few of us can ever reach, right? But the truth is that it's exactly what he says again and again and again about the, the kingdom itself, the treasure hidden in a field that if a man finds it, then he tells everything he has and goes in order to buy that field in order to get the treasure out of the field. And he tells those parables of the kingdom that, that it has to be the most important thing. He says that in, uh, in, his, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says that, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. C.S. Lewis says that, that um, if you aim for the kingdom, you'll get earth thrown into the bargain. But if you get earth, if you seek after earth, then you'll end up with neither. And there's a huge truth in that. And Jesus is saying that here. He's saying that if you really want to be my disciple, you've got to leave everything else behind. It's not a new message. I mean, when he tells people to take up their cross, which is what he's getting ready to say, that's exactly what he's saying. He says, look, you've got to hate everything that has a claim on you. And you've got to say no to those things in order to say yes to the kingdom. It's a high bar and a high standard. And so he, he goes on to say, whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So we've got to say, no, I, I'm going to reject my life. I'm, I'm going to say the most important thing is you and your kingdom, Jesus. Because if it weren't for you, I wouldn't have anything at all. I would be dead in my trespasses with no hope in the world. For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and isn't able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. I can remember that um, near where we lived in, in Knoxville, if you went a back way to get to our house, there was a, an odd little structure. And, and it was easy, at least from my perspective, to see what it was. It was a little structure that had a flat roof, and it sat on the side of a hill. And, and it, it looked to me, and it was, actually, I found out later, exactly what I thought it was, which was it was intended to be the basement of the guy's house. And then he ran out of money. So he lived in it. <laughs> and it was his house. But it was clear that from looking at it, nobody intended to build that just as a freestanding structure. But but it's what happened. And he ended up living in that house um, for all that time. And it's so, um, it's such a human thing to have an appetite bigger than than our pocketbook will allow. And so here, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He says, you got to figure it out first. got to figure out the cost. If you don't, then you're going to look like an idiot, like this guy did. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war won't first sit down and deliberate what he's able with 10,000, whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him, who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, I liked it better when he just said that to the rich young ruler. I liked it a whole lot better then because I've never been a rich young ruler. But now he says, any of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I don't like that. Why do not do I not like that? Well, it's because I'm still enticed by the other things. I still think they have value. And as long as I think they have value, I can't renounce them. But it, and it's our problem with the seen and the unseen realms is, is that, that we, we are attracted to the things that we can see. We can have great imaginations, but, but, but that imagination doesn't make a thing real. 
And, and so until something is real to us, we don't see the value. We ascribe to it a lot less worth than it actually has until something is very real to us. And so what we need to see is the kingdom was so real to Jesus that he laid down his life for us. We were so real to him. The objects of his love that he laid down his kingdom and equality with God is not something to be grasped, but was found in the form of a servant. We've been given the spirit so that we can actually see these things. And we can appreciate the truth of the unseen realities and the unseen kingdom. And we're called into that. And so, you know, today, I know what I'm going to do. And that, that, that one of those things is to say, Lord, give me such a vision of your kingdom that I'm willing to lay down everything again. Again and again and again. And I've been in this for 25 years. And it hasn't been particularly lucrative for me to do this. Um, but, but it's gotten me through life. And it sustained me in every way that it could possibly sustain me. But there's a part of me that still wants, right? And so still wanting that is is not forsaking everything else for the kingdom of God. And so it's a call when we hear these words. Jesus has got these people following him because they've seen what he's done or they've heard what he's done and they've heard his teaching and they're attracted to it as they go to Jerusalem. And he knows what lies ahead of him, and they don't. And so they think at some level that, that he's getting ready to be the king, and they'll be swept up in, in that moment. And, and they'll be part of that. And Jesus says, you got, you got to count the cost. And they don't see the cost. They can't see that yet, but we can because we know what they didn't know. We know a lot of things, in fact, that they didn't know. But we're called to to follow him, and we're called to let go of everything else, just like Paul did, and just as Paul encourages us to do. He goes, Jesus goes on to say, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's an inherent property of the salt. It's not something that's infused into the salt. Saltiness is not. It's of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And, and that can be, I think, the problem in the church today is we've lost our saltiness. We've gotten involved in everything else, and we're chasing after the wind, as I said. And, and, and it, it's, the problem is the church has lost its saltiness in, in way too many places. And then how do you restore that? Well, prayer, right? I mean, that's certainly one of the ways. Um, study and worship, all those things have a lot to do with how you can restore the saltiness that that has been lost in your life. It's the recognition of the loss of it should prompt us to get on our knees and pray that the Lord restore that property to us. In the Revelation passage, remember what's happened here is, is there's been judgment against Babylon. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Like I said, it's the same sort of judgment that was passed on Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the, the smoke going up from her. Um, do we have the right 
to celebrate this? I mean, it's, it's a it's a good question. It's a real question. I mean it with all my heart. Do, do we have the right to celebrate it? And, and the reason I'm asking that is this, because if we if we uh, derive any pleasure from that now, if we're enticed by it in any way, as John was when he marveled initially, then we need something in us to be redeemed so that we can see through it to the truth. We need to be able to see things the way God sees them. We, we need to see the, the pain that's been inflicted on people in it, by this city that we're speaking of here. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Now, at the time... There's a huge truth in this. I mean, what's the greatest city in the ancient world at this time? And that's certainly Rome. So that's got to be kind of what we're talking about in the present context of John's prophecy. And and indeed, there was huge persecution for the saints coming from Rome. But the whole world was drawn to her at the same time. And it was corrupt, and it was debauched, and but it was wonderful. It glittered. It had everything anybody could imagine or want. And yet, it hated the saints. It hated the church. And therefore, it persecuted the church relentlessly in the beginning. Now, Rome becomes the center for the papal see, obviously. It's where the pope sits. But, but at the time, Rome was opposed to this new movement of Christianity. It, it saw it as a threat because it proclaimed a different king and a different set of morality, a different set of values from the values of Rome. And so because it dared speak against Rome, Rome decided to persecute it because Rome had what it perceived was all the power. And it did for a time until it was overthrown and replaced by another and another and another. And the same thing with the Third Reich. Right For a time, it could do anything that it wanted to the Jews and the gypsies and the homosexuals and whoever else it chose to persecute because it had the power to do so until that power was overthrown. And that's the thing is, is that God always wins in the end. Let's not be those who are seduced along the way by what these places have to offer. And the 24 elders, and the, they said, so they cried, Amen and Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So the marriage of the lamb and the bride has made herself ready. And how did she do it? And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. So I'd like to be part of that. I'd like to be part of that bride. But what are the righteous deeds of the saints? And those are the clothing she wears. She is made beautiful, not just by the Lamb, but by the, by the continuing work of the saints. And you, my friend, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, are one of the saints who's intended to adorn the bride of Christ. If we want to do that, if we want to be part of that adornment, then, then we have to set ourselves firmly fixed 
in that direction. We can't be half-hearted in these things, and, and we can't leave the work of the saints to those special people. We're all intended to be saints. We're all intended to be all in on following the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're, we're to be those who push all their chips in, who see the end of all things in the same way that Joel saw the end of all things, and, and then to say, I, I want to be on the right side of history here. And so I'm going to go all in and following Jesus. I'm going to give everything I've got. And I want to be one of those people who adorns the body of Christ, not who, who tarnishes it in any way. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. It, it, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, what, is this, what does that mean? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of, the pro, of prophecy. Well, it, it, in the context, I mean, there's a context for that. It's not just some random statement that you just pull out of the blue. No, what, what the angel has just said is this. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Oh, so there's the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so why was John about to worship, worship him? Because he said, these are the true words of God. So he was willing to worship him because of the true words of God that had been proclaimed by the angel. And that's, that's what the angel says. That's the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. It, the, the truth when somebody speaks the truth, I mean, you've seen this a million times. You experienced it probably a million times. When somebody speaks a truth, you just, oh my gosh. When you know that something is true at a profound level, man, you just, I mean, that's the reason that some teachers get great followings is because they're able to communicate these great truths in such a way that, that people know it with all their being. They know this thing is true. And then what, what happens is because we, we love the truth, then we can end up loving the one who tells the truth more than we love the one who is true. The truth about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy because it's true. It tells us everything we need to know about today and tomorrow. And so the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy because it allows us to see clearly yesterday, today, and tomorrow, all at the same time. And to the extent that we preach and teach and we share the gospel with other people truly, then we are being prophets to those people because they can receive that truth across all those timelines. And so we need to, to be really, really good at that truth. We need to commit ourselves to it wholeheartedly. We need it to be first that true for us that we can then go and tell it to others we need that truth to transform us in every single way into those people who seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness